We're going to consider that passage from John 17 that we read just a few moments ago. It might be useful to have that in front of you. In the Bible, we often get um, the same topic spoken of almost from two different perspectives. So what I mean is, for example, on the one hand, Christians are told to persevere in their faith, to make sure they don't fall away. Uh, That's the responsibility of the Christian. And yet, on the other hand, we're told that God will keep those who are his children. They're not contradictory, but they work together. Two different perspectives. Similarly, on the one hand, we get told to pray, ask God for the things that we need and that prayer changes things. And yet on the other, we're told that God controls everything, has had a plan since the foundation of the world, and he knows what will happen and what we need even before we ask it. Again, not contradictory, but two perspectives on the same issue. Now, a few weeks ago, I spoke uh, here at Holywell Church about uh, unity, the issue of church unity. And we looked at a uh, passage from Philippians and the responsibility was on us as believers to make sure that we don't compromise this unity or that we don't give up on this unity. And we, we have to act in order to preserve our unity. And today I want to address the same topic, but from a different perspective. I want to look at John 17. And if you I hope you picked up as we read it, that what's going on in this chapter is Jesus is praying to God. And one of the things that he prays for is the unity of believers. Now, the reason I've come to this passage to talk about the unity of believers is because perhaps here more than elsewhere, we see that the unity that we have as a believer, as as a church, is, uh, well, the emphasis rests less upon us doing and more upon God acting. You see, So a few weeks ago, we had our responsibility. And today we're going to see how God is providing this unity. It's a prayer for God to act before it is an instruction for us. Now, I hope that what that will do is not just discredit everything that we spoke about two weeks ago. This isn't to it doesn't mean that our unity is just blindly guaranteed and God will make sure that we're united, whether we like it or not. Now, that's not my aim. My aim is to encourage us to persevere in this work of being united. Um, a, a certain philosopher once said that so long as people have the answer to why, they will be able to face any of the how. What it means is if we apply that to this example, if we know why we ought to be united and what is its purpose and what is its value, if we know why we ought to be united, then we'll be able to face and continue to um, to to make the effort to be united in every sense. Now, we turn to John 17 because, as we've already said, this is a prayer for God to act. And we're going to see this evening that our unity as believers rests in a work of God. It is not solely dependent upon our actions. But first, I want to see what is unity. According to Jesus' words, what is unity? What exactly is he praying for? Have a look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. He means the apostles that he's just prayed for. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So this is now the church that Jesus is praying for. I pray, verse 21, that all of them may be one. 
And this is what I mean when I talk about unity. Jesus praying for our oneness. Now, as a standalone phrase, oneness is hugely ambiguous. It could mean almost anything you want it to mean in this general sphere of unity. And so in what sense are we meant to be united? Does it mean, for example, that we that we're all supposed to be uniform, wear the same clothes, speak the same language, come from the same sorts of families, work the same jobs? You can see some religions of the world that teach those sorts of things. I don't think that's what Jesus is asking for here. Does it mean we ought to share everything that we have, sell all of our possessions and put all of our money in a communal pot like the early church did? That would certainly be oneness, wouldn't it? All of our possessions shared. Does it mean that there ought to be no difference of opinion? That we ought to uh, give up uh, fighting for truth in order to preserve unity, a sense of um, togetherness, avoid division at all costs. In the past, people have spoken about unity with reference to either of these options and, and more besides. But what is it that Jesus has in mind when he prays for unity? Well, helpfully, he he adds a few more descriptors, two in particular. So we're still in verse 21, that all of them may be one father. And then here comes the first descriptor. Just as you are in me and I am in you. So the first analogy that we get of what it means to be united is the analogy of the way the father relates to the son. There are three important things that I want to point out about this that we see if we, if we consider this analogy. The first is that our unity must therefore be close. That, that ought to be a word that we, we can use to describe the relationship that we have with one another. We're going to see in a few moments that throughout John's gospel, there could not be more emphasis on the, the closeness of Jesus, the son, with God, the father. If you've seen one, you've seen the other. If you've heard the words of one, you've heard the words of the other. This unity that Jesus is teaching certainly is closeness. So we can rule out things like, for example, you might be going to a school. You wear the same uniform. You, you turn up to the same building every day or at least before the lockdown and you hope to in September. There is a sense in which you are one with the other students. But you go there every day and there's people that you see every day, passing the corridor every day, perhaps even sit in the same class as every day. And you don't even know their names or what they do or what their interests are. There's no closeness there. There's no concern. There's no real unity, at least not in the sense that Jesus is speaking about. So there is a closeness, but there is not uniformity. This doesn't mean we're all just going to be the same. The father is not the son. The father didn't die on the cross. They, they, they each have different roles, different work that they do. They, they, uh, there are some ways in which you, you can say they overlap, but generally they are different. They are not the same. They are closely joined, certainly. But they are not the same. So this unity doesn't mean uniformity. There's going to be diversity. And thirdly, I think by considering this analogy, the father and the son, we will see that there is an emphasis on the work that is going to be done by these people who are united. 
There is an emphasis on the work that we are doing or the task. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus' words have emphatically shown that Jesus is not is not just acting out of his own ideas or his own desires or his own purpose. Instead, he is doing the work that the father sent him to do. He's been given a job and he's doing it. In fact, he prays that in verse four of this chapter. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. You get to verse eight and you find that he's speaking the words that the father has given them. Verse eight, I gave them the words that you gave me. Verse 19, Jesus sanctifies himself for the father. That word sanctify means he sets himself apart to do God's will, to be utterly devoted to God. Ultimately, in this context, I mean, I think he means he's setting himself apart to to go to the cross, to do the ultimate work that God has sent him to do. And, And he says there in verse 19, he's doing this work of sanctification. He's doing the work of the father so that the disciples would be sanctified. So they also can share in the work that God has given. A a big emphasis that we see in John's gospel of the unity between the father and the son rests on the work that Jesus is doing. We know that Jesus is united to the father because in every way he is doing the work that the father gave him. And now Jesus is applying that analogy to the church. The unity that Christians share ought to be just like the unity that the father and the son share. I think the unity that the Christians share centers on the task that God has given. And you see in this, this, uh, these verses hinted at that the task that we have been given is very closely related to the task that Jesus was given. If you have to summarize it into two key things that Jesus was doing, you could summarize it into these two. Probably there's other answers to this, but you could summarize it as revealing. Chapter one of John's gospel says Jesus came to give light. Jesus came to show us the father. Jesus came to reveal God's glory. He reveals. And also he draws. Again, chapter one, as it introduces Jesus and the work that he's come to do, tells us that Jesus is going to give people the right to become children of God. He's going to draw people back to God. Jesus is revealing and he's drawing people. He's revealing God and he's drawing people towards God. And that same task that Jesus was given is then passed on to the church. And so our unity is based around this task that we have, revealing God to the world and drawing people to faith in him, to relationship with him. Now, task based unity, if that's what you might like to summarize this, this as is not uniquely Christian. We've seen it throughout the lockdown, for example. Why is it that people have been doing their shopping for their neighbors? You might have lived next door to them for 50 years and they've never bought you a thing. And over the past week, they've been doing your shopping every week. Why is that? It's because we've accepted the restrictions of the lockdown. Why have we accepted those restrictions? 
because we've been given this task to do that we've all got behind. Save the NHS. We've all seen the importance of needing to act in a certain way to achieve that task. We want to save the NHS. And by by all adopting that task as our own, it's brought us united in ways that we've uh, certainly I've not seen in my lifetime. It's brought people together. Now, Christian unity is much deeper than the unity that you might have with your neighbours during lockdown. And the unity shares on the task of sharing the gospel, revealing God to people and drawing people to faith in him. And now those two things can therefore be a help in deciding, Okay, what are the limits of unity? Who are we not going to be united with? Are we just joined with anybody who claims to be Christian? Are we joined with anybody who claims to be religious? Well, no, we're joined with those who are taking on this same task as us. Those who have the same understanding of who God is. Those who have the same understanding of the importance of knowing him and have the same message about how to know him. With all those people, we can we can join together. We can be united. And indeed, we are united. But for those who have different ideas of who God is, of who Jesus is as the son. uh, Those who have different ideas of what salvation is or how to be saved then there's no necessity for us to be working together because we're not united together. And that's not the sort of unity that Jesus is praying for. The first analogy then that Jesus gives us about the unity that Christians share is the analogy of the father with the son. But then he goes on. Look again at verse 21, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. May they also be in us. So he's saying there ought to be a unity between them. But there also ought to be a unity between them and us, between Christians and God. How can Christians be united to God in this way? Most likely in this prayer, Jesus is alluding back to some teaching that is not long since given the disciples. In chapter 15, Jesus talks about an analogy of the vine and the branches. Some of you might know it. And he says, you disciples are like the branches. And Jesus says, I am the vine. And you are you are joined to me. You're drawing your life from me. Now, if the branches are dangling fruit off them, what type of fruit will it be? It'll be fruit that is drawn from the life of the vine. That the fruit is derived from the vine, our fruitfulness, our spiritual life, our effectiveness in our mission, in achieving that task that we've been given. Doesn't come from ourselves. It doesn't come from the branches. Our effectiveness comes from the vine to which we're attached, the God to which we are united with. I've brought a, a little Picture, an illustration to, to try and help demonstrate this point. One of the things that I enjoy doing when we go on holiday is flying my kite. OK, now it's not just a, you know, a little diamond. I've got a bigger kite. And the reason I enjoy flying it is because it's got so much power that it is able to to drag me along the beach. And the exhilaration comes from trying to wrestle the kite in the air to keep it under control and make sure I don't end up flat on my face. 
it's quite exciting, really. But it's interesting that, that in order to get this type of feeling, in order to be moved so powerfully down the beach, you don't necessarily need a strong wind. And the kite itself seems so insignificant. Here it is. It's made just of fabric. OK, it's, it's nylon, ripstop nylon. OK, it's essentially a glorified anorak, just pieces of uh, nylon sewn together to make a big sheet. There's no sticks in it. There's no rods. There's no spars. There's nothing to give it any strength or stiffness. It's just a big piece of fabric. And then the string that goes with it is so it's just made of uh, polyethylene like plastic bags are made of. And if I hold it up there. There, if I hold it against my hair, you can just about see it, okay? It's so thin, you'd wonder how can anyone get dragged along a beach with such an insignificant, puny-looking piece of string? And, of course, on their own, you can't. You're not, you're not going to drag me along the beach with this. If you, if you tie it up, probably I could just use my teeth to break through it. Uh, with a big sheet like this, I don't know how you're going to get me to, uh, to be dragged along. But when you join them together, the kite becomes hugely effective, when, when, when they're united together to, to achieve the purpose that they're designed for, the kite becomes powerful and it's able to drag me along. Now, where is that power coming from? If I set up the kite now and try to fly it in this room, it wouldn't have that same effect. And so you, you wouldn't say that the power is coming from the kite. So you take it outside and you let it catch the wind and as the wind blows against the kite, that, the wind drags me along the beach. But equally, you wouldn't say it was the wind that was dragging me along. Because you can fly it and, and be dragged along on days where the wind is actually quite light. Just when it's rustling the leaves in the trees or so on. And so what you see is that, yet yeah, ultimately it is the wind that's dragging me along. But it's the wind working through the kite, as it is united together to, to do the job that it's designed to do. And the illustration, I think, maps onto the church. As individuals, we are weak and ineffective. But as we are joined together as part of the church family, God works powerfully through us in order to move others, powerfully move them. Now, God could do that work without the church. Just like the wind could push me along the beach without needing a kite in my hands. But that's not normally what the wind does. Most days you can go to the beach and walk along it without being blown off your feet. And in the same way, God normally doesn't save people apart from leading them through the church. God's uh, Jesus prays for, for our unity because the unity of the church is the means that God then uses to achieve his purpose. That's why the, the church unity is so important, because it is the means that God is going to use. Now, what does our unity achieve then? That's the second question. If we know what unity is, what is it going to achieve? There's all sorts of benefits of the church unity. And if you are part of the church family, I hope you have felt some of those benefits already. The, the fellowship, the, the love, the care and compassion that you've received. I hope that's true. But the specific function of church unity is that the church might be a witness to the world. Verse 21 again. 
may they also be in us so that the world may believe. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's a little bit of an awkward way of putting things, you might think. Why why does the world need to know that Jesus has been sent by God? Surely we would just talk about believing in Jesus or repenting of sin or, or whatever else. Why do we need to know that Jesus was sent by God? Well, again, the context of John's gospel really helps understand Jesus' point here. Throughout the, the gospel, Jesus being attacked and accused by all sorts of people that he's essentially... Uh, untrustworthy because they don't know where he's come from. They don't know where he's got his message from and they don't know who he is. And one of the big things that Jesus is trying to show them is that he he is not just some lunatic with with big ideas about himself. But actually, he is the Messiah. He's God's son who has been sent with a message of forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, when a few years ago. I got a phone call off our internet supplier, Talk Talk, and they said there was a. Um, they noticed I've been having some issues with my internet supply. Uh, too right, I had. I was ready to give them a piece of my mind over the phone, and they said, "Yeah, no problem. We, we can answer all those questions and maybe give you some refunds and things like that." Um, can you just tell us your your uh, account details? Tell us your email address and your password and so on. And we can go through the security questions and get things sorted. Thankfully. I was ready to dive in. Thankfully, I stopped. I thought, hang on, they've rang me. How do I know that they're from Talk Talk? In the end, they weren't. When I started asking them, they pretty quickly hung up the phone. I wouldn't trust them until I knew who they were calling from. I wouldn't trust them until I knew where they were from. And the same is true of Jesus. We ought not to trust him until we're assured that he really is God's son and that the message he teaches us about forgiveness and about how we can be saved is the message of God. Jesus says that church unity will convince the world that Jesus is trustworthy. Church unity will convince the world that Jesus has been sent by God. How does that happen? There's a clue in the next verse. Verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. When Jesus Christ was sent, he had been given glory by the, fa- by the Father. He'd been given the glory of God to, to reveal to the world. He came as God's representative. And as he lived and as he spoke and as he taught and as he performed miracles and as he did all the things that are written down for us. The character of God was so clearly revealed that the Bible can describe him as the image of God and that Jesus himself can say, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. Such was the glory that Jesus had been given. Chapter one, familiar verses, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. The glory that Jesus has is the glory of God. 
And in verse 22 of chapter 17, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. Jesus has given the church the glory that he revealed from the father. Jesus has given the church the ability to display the character, the goodness, the graciousness, the truthfulness of God. And so when people in the world come across the church and they see people loving one another, united together, working for the same task. When they come across people who live and speak and act in a way where where sin is hated and not tolerated. And yet where sinners are treated with merciful patience. Or when they come across the church and see that people here are loved and valued and honoured, even though they have nothing of their own to contribute. They're past their best. They're weak and insignificant in the world's eyes. Or when people see the church as a place where those who are strongest are the same people who know best their own weakness, then people are experiencing not just the traditions of men, religious rights handed down through generations. When people see those things worked out in the unity of the church, what they're experiencing is the glory of God himself. They're experiencing God's character portrayed to them in the way that Christians relate to one another. And ultimately, they see the gospel portrayed to them, pictured in the way that people from outside can be drawn in and welcomed and joined to the family through Jesus Christ. A way that God is drawing the world back to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. God is revealing his character to the world by causing Christians to love one another and to serve together in order to achieve the same common goal of making Jesus Christ known and the glory of God to be revealed. God has made us, his church, carry his glory so that through our unity, the world might be convinced. Now, of course, there will always be some who criticize and accuse. There'll be people who've come across the church and experienced hypocrisy or abuse or anger or frustration or rejection. And they will charge the failings of the church to the God who they claim to serve. And yet there are many more besides, many more in Loughborough, many more on this estate, many more in your life. Whose first experience of the love of God will be when they see it and experience it for themselves as they come across the unity, the love, the fellowship, the wholehearted devotion of the church. I hope that encourages you to work and persevere at protecting our unity, 
I hope that encourages you to love others in the church in order that our love might be a witness to the watching world. Our unity is is so important because it is the vehicle by which God is revealing himself to the world. Now, to close, we've just got to ask, well, how is it? How is it that we get this unity? How can we be united? Two weeks ago, we thought about our responsibility. Today, we're looking from a different perspective, which does not rule out our responsibility and the things that we can do. But today we hear this, that the unity of the church is a gift that God has given to the people. That Jesus is praying for God to do it. This is a prayer for God to act before it is an instruction to Christians. So we could turn to Ephesians or Philippians or James or uh, almost any of the books in the New Testament. And pick up lessons about how we ought to love more deeply and strive harder to to care for those around us. Or we can remember John 17 and say that this is a work of God. And pray for it to happen and pray for God to protect our unity in order that the gospel message might be made all the more clear through our congregation.